Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. All right, so yesterday there was a suicide bombing outside of Kabul Air Base, and the Marine Corps suffered a very big loss. I saw conflicting reports on how many injured and how many dead uh, from USNI News. The most updated report that I've seen so far is that there's been 10 Marines, one sailor who was a Navy corpsman, and two other U.S. troops that were killed in the suicide bombing, and up to 18 injured being medically evacuated, and uh, an unknown number of Afghan civilians that were killed and wounded. So the Navy corpsmen, for those of you who do not know, the Marine Corps does not have its own medics, so the Marine Corps uses the Navy corpsmen. Uh, They get embedded with Marine Corps units and Marine Corps platoons, and they become basically just like one of us. They train with us. They're with us all the time. The enemy doesn't know the difference between them and a Marine. They wear our camouflage. They look exactly like us on the battlefield, and they essentially are a part of the Marine Corps community. Uh, So it was a very big loss as a Marine. Uh, You know, I hate seeing this type of stuff, especially since it could have been avoided. This has been a failure of a withdrawal from the top leadership, from the White House all the way down to the Pentagon. A failure up and down the chain of command. (sighs) All right, so let's get into how did this happen? How, How is it that the Taliban was able to gain control and the Afghan military was to just lay down as they did? Well, as you saw in my last couple podcasts, I've been reading articles and books that were written by uh, this reporter named Holly McKay. She's actually is in Afghanistan, or she's outside of Afghanistan right now. And she went out there in August to cover the withdrawal. And she was there when the Taliban took over. And she wrote a piece in K News which is titled, From the Inside, How the Taliban Misled the West to Win the War on Terror. It's a rough title, but it's true. So how did this happen, right? How is it that the Afghan military could just lay down and the Taliban take control like that? We're going to find out. We're going to see the piece that she wrote. So she's in Uzbekistan. It says, One day, the northern Afghanistan city of Mazar was brimming with meat stalls and markets, smiles and streets stuffed with people. The next day, something ominous had crept in as rumors swirled that the Taliban had encircled the typically staunch resistance city. By the late afternoon, the once vibrant hub was a shuttered ghost town. Hours later, not long after darkness fell, the sound of celebratory gunfire crackled the air along with a roar of mass motorcycles entering Missouri. That was how quickly Mazar had crumbled to the Taliban, capturing every inch without even to battle back. So how was it that after two decades, more than $80 billion in U.S. taxpayer dollars dished out to train and bolster the Afghanistan security forces, the Taliban were able to thrash through and capture the country so quickly? In the end, it came down to tea and talking, just as much as bullets and bloodshed. As far back as a year ago, The Taliban operatives were cutting quiet deals with the military commanders and government officials offering large sums of money and prearranging the surrender of villages, towns, cities, providences without the knowledge of those 
sent to the firing line to fight. So in sort of backroom deals, as we would say, the Taliban was cutting deals with military officials in the Afghanistan army to basically surrender villages. They're offering them large sums of money so that when the day came that the U.S. was to pull out, then those villages would surrender and fall to Taliban control without the troops knowing. So according to one high-ranking Afghan special forces colonel who fought tirelessly for days and around the gates of Mazar, he and his men were left overwhelmed and outnumbered before learning that their own leaders had sold them out. We lost all morale, he lamented. We were given no choice but to run. But then the Taliban got us and they barely had to work for it. Indeed, the Taliban's success stemmed not only from a careful combination of violence and influence, but tactical restraint since the Trump team signed a peace deal in Doha in February of 2020. The Taliban did not target U.S. troops during this time. Instead, analysts observed that at times they also gave space for the Afghan government forces to put up some akin to a fair fight, creating the misleading impression that the U.S. trained soldiers were more robust than they really were and willing to take on the impending battle long after the U.S. had departed. Government figures touted 300,000 highly skilled servicemen in the Afghan army, yet it has since been suggested that the real numbers were significantly lower and that there were still tens of thousands of ghost soldiers, personnel that did not exist, on the books getting paid. Throughout the long-running war, ghost soldiers were indicative in the high levels of corruption in both the government and military ranks. Leaders endeavored to take salaries and profit from U.S. handouts to line their own pockets. The corruption has long bled into the leaders putting close friends and family members into top military positions despite the lack of battlefield and leadership over the past six years in particular. This resulted in an extraordinarily high number of casualties and deaths, upward of over 100 per day, causing a ripple effect of low morale, mass defections, and soldiers simply failing to show up for the job. In addition, Afghanistan's intelligence proficiency was overestimated and rife with nepotism and malfeasance, insider infiltration, and the selling of information to the Taliban to pave the way for their dizzying fast takeover. Even as Mazar was just minutes away from tumbling, the senior officials inside the National Directorate of Security, Afghanistan's leading security wing, assured me over the phone that the city was still weak, at worst days after, from coming under the Taliban's grip intelligence failure in its prime. The U.S. also likely operating off summations issued by the Afghan government cautioned this month that the city would probably only hold up for three months post-U.S. occupation. However, that three-month warning amounted only to about three days. Now, no matter how you try to spin this, the U.S. government was information from the Afghan government that after the U.S. troop withdrawal, that the Afghan government would only be a able to last at most three months. But what did we do? We still left sensitive equipment, Blackhawks, whole bunch of equipment, secret, top secret equipment in Afghanistan, knowing that the Taliban was going to take over in a couple of months. We have to seriously ask the question, why? It has got to be a seriously, someone has to ask that question as to why we would leave equipment there if we knew that the Taliban was going to take over and it was only a matter of time secret and top secret equipment. Could only think, 
reasoning that does not benefit the United States and that it was done on purpose. And for it to be coming from a place in high position in our government is very troubling. We all need to keep an eye out and keep on a lookout for that. Moreover, the morbid miscalculation of the Afghan air power aided to a quick crush of the country. The U.S. spent hundreds of millions of equipment bolstering what was lauded to be a formidable air force, the only military component that gave them an advantage over the Taliban, who did not possess such capabilities. Yet, in these past swan song weeks, the air proficiency dwindled into a non-existence. In the case of Mazar, even as the Taliban was encircling the city and rapidly closing in, I saw for myself that the skies were chillingly empty. The insurgent group then ratcheted up their attacks around May. Intelligence sources on the ground said that as part of their annual spring offensive, however, this time, the group understood that the U.S. had already began pulling out its remaining forces and were able to strategically time their efforts in conjunction with the Biden administration's declared August 31st deadline. Washington, spanning multiple administrations, is also walking away with a thick layer of blood on their hands. As part of an olive branch gesture to show that they were serious about committing to hammering out an agreement early last year, the U.S. mandated the Afghan government, who were not included in the negotiations taking place in Doha, release 5,000 Taliban fighters from prison, while the inmates were made to sign a pledge that they would not re-engage in the conflict. NDS reports shown to me the week before the Kabul crumble indicated that at least 80% had returned to the theater of war. Sure, let's give these 5,000 Taliban inmates a pledge, go back onto the battlefield. A pledge. Yeah. Let me give your Boy Scouts honor, right? No doubt put the Taliban in prime position for victory. Still, the pace to which the Taliban was able to seize the country, including the capital, was so rapid that it surprised even them, with some leaders acknowledging that they had expected to at least negotiate a handover of the presidential palace. Yet, on the fateful Sunday they entered, President, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Yet, on the fateful Sunday they entered, the president had already departed the country, leaving the egress wide open for their arrival. During the first power reign a quarter of a century ago, the Taliban, a splinter group of the hardened Mujahideen fighters who had come over after the Soviet defeat in 1989, initiated a Dachronian version of the Islamic Sharia law complete with amputations and floggings and large-scale hangings, and stoning of women. While the upper echelons of the Taliban in 2021 are taking great pains to pledge that they have evolved to respect human rights and seek peace and inclusivity among Afghans, those old enough to remember that the last rendition of those young enough to fear the history books claim that the insurgency cannot be trusted. We respect women's rights, one elder, Talib, and Mazari Sharif, said as he drove us from the fallen city, while not daring to look at my exposed face. The problem is, he said darkly, people don't understand the Sharia law. The Taliban had been quick to declare that the war is over, but in a jarring twist of fate, it may just be entering another new and bloody installment. On Thursday, the ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan, known as the ISIS-K, unleashed a series of coordinated suicide bombings through the Fernized capital, killing 13 U.S. service members and upwards of 90 Afghans. The tactic was ultimately designed to wreak havoc and show that the Taliban was 
incapable of providing adequate security to its population, a haunting copy of the very same approach that the Taliban themselves have used in past years to undermine the now displaced Afghan government. And then there's a, uh, there's a little notation at the bottom here that Holly McKay has fled Afghanistan to Uzbekistan in the wake of the Taliban sweeping the capital of Kabul after the government collapsed. So Holly McKay, she's on the, uh, she's right there in the midst of it. I was just listening to her on Lisa Daftari's podcast and they were, she was actually in Uzbekistan at the time and uh, they're, Go listen to that podcast, uh, Lisa Daftari. Shout out to her as well. Um, she's also another one that covers a lot in the Middle East. Um, you know, she's also really good at what she does. All right, so let's continue. Let's get back into the suicide bombing that took place. ISIS is taking responsibility for it. Uh, this is a piece from The Guardian. Islamic State claims responsibility for the Cabal airport blast. The claim of responsibility from the Islamic State for the devastating suicide bombing at Kabul airport came as a little surprise to analysts. The organization's affiliate in Afghanistan immediately after the blast, the Islamic State official news agency said on its Telegram channel that a member called Abdul Ram al-Lagari carried out the martyrdom operation near Kabul airport. The name suggests the killer of at least 12 U.S. servicemen and more than 60 civilians in Afghanistan. That number has been updated to 13 and over 90 Afghan civilians. On Sunday, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that there was an acute and persistent threat to the continuing evacuations of the Afghan capital from the ISKP. The group that has so far attracted little attention was echoed this week by British and Western European officials. Many have been worried by the intensification of attacks linked to ISKP in recent months. Resurgence after a tough time in 2019 and the first half of 2020, but they went silent suddenly since the Taliban takeover, and a possible reason for that was that the group was gearing up for a new campaign, said Charlie Winter, a senior research fellow at the London University International Center for Study of Radicalization. The crowd's plans and infrastructure of the airport provided an obvious venue for that kind of mass casualty attack that the eye become known for. Winter said that the situation was also a perfect meeting of diverse targets in Afghanistan. The U.S. military Afghans who have helped the Western effort and are therefore seen as collaborators with the Taliban, which the ISKP sees as apostates. The ISKP is likely to see an attack against the airport as a great victory, said Tom Hamming, an expert on the IS, also at the ICSR. They achieved several things. They hit a legitimate target, and they sent a signal of still being a force to be reckoned with. And they challenged the Taliban state project by highlighting that the group cannot secure Kabul. The ISKP was founded just under six years ago after representatives of the Islamic State made their way south to western Pakistan to meet disaffected Taliban commanders and their and other extremists who felt marginalized with the jihadist movement in the region. All right, so now we got ISIS-K moving in, trying to wreak havoc. You got two terrorist organizations operating over there in Afghanistan. You got the Taliban, you got the ISKP. It gets worse, folks. It gets worse. The United States gave names to the Taliban of Americans and Afghans who have helped us to ask them to help us 
evacuate them. This is a piece from Politico. It says U.S. officials provided Taliban with names of Americans, Afghan allies to evacuate. The U.S. officials in Kabul gave the Taliban a list of names of American citizens, green card holders, and Afghan allies to grant entry into the militant-controlled outer perimeter of the city's airport, a choice that's prompted outrage behind the scenes from lawmakers and military officials. I wonder why. The move detailed to Politico by three U.S. and congressional officials was designed to expedite the evacuation of tens of thousands of people from Afghanistan as chaos erupted in Afghanistan's capital city last week after the Taliban seized control of the country. It also came as the Biden administration had been relying on the Taliban for security outside the airport. Since the fall of Kabul, nearly 100,000 people have been evacuated, most of whom had to pass through the Taliban's many checkpoints. But the decision to provide specific names to the Taliban, which has a history of brutally murdering Afghans who collaborated with the U.S. and other coalition forces during the conflict, has angered lawmakers and military officials. Basically, they just put all the Afghans on a kill list said one defense official, like others, spoke on a condition of being anonymous to discuss sensitive topics. It's just appalling and shocking and makes you feel unclean. As about Politico's reporting during a Thursday news conference, the president, Joe Biden, said that he wasn't sure if there was such a list, but also didn't deny that sometimes the U.S. hands over names to the Taliban. There have been occasions when our military has contacted their military counterparts, he said. So yes, there have been occasions like that. To the best of my knowledge, in those cases, the bulk of that has occurred and they have been let through. Yeah, so that's happened in the past when the Taliban didn't have control of the whole country. The Taliban has control of the whole country and they are out for re- revenge. They are out for vengeance. Any Afghan who helped the United States is going to be hunted down and will be slaughtered. And the United States gave them a list of who those individuals are. The United States is also relying on the Taliban for safe passage of people trying to get to airports so they can leave. So it's like our U.S. is trying to say that we're working with a terrorist organization. But I thought that the United States doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Oh, but we do because now the whole terrorist organization is running a country. So I was listening to Holly McKay on the Lisa Daftari podcast, the Foreign Desk podcast. And she said that the Taliban's goal right now is to be put on the national stage. They want to be a part of the UN. They want a seat at the UN and they want to be recognized globally. So that they haven't been able to do 20 years ago. But now they see an opportunity that they can be globally recognized. And I hate to say it, but I think that that's what's going to happen. I think that in the coming weeks, months, years, we will see a time when the Taliban has a seat at the United Nations. We're in a dark period in our country, folks, and it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. I really hate to say it, but unless something happens, our leadership, not just the president, but Congress, they're on a road to destruction. I don't know why, but it seems like they want to destroy the United States from the inside. Because everything that is happening since the new government has taken over in the United States. Everything that has happened has been against the best interests of the country. Inflation, COVID response, everything is going against the best interests of our country, shutting down pipelines, but allowing Russia to do their pipeline with Germany. 
We used to be energy efficient. Now we're relying on other countries again for energy. Everything that is happening is going against the best interest of the United States. It gets really frustrating because we all knew that this was going to happen. Well, not all of us, I should say. But most of us who were level-headed thinking people who knew that the left, that the Democrats, we knew how they think and they know we know what they believe in. And that what they believe in is the opposite of what's good for the country. So we knew that what was going to happen. I really hate to be the one to say, I told you so, but I told you so. There's nothing good coming out of our government right now. Everything seems to be in the worst interest of the United States. Here's another one from the Independent. The Pentagon admits that thousands of ISIS-K militants released from U.S. prisons by the Taliban. Pentagon has admitted that the Taliban released thousands of ISIS-K militants from U.S. prisons. The Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby was asked how many members of ISIS-K, a wing of the Islamic State based in Afghanistan, were released from prison at Bagram and why they were not removed before the United States began its final departure. And he says, I don't know the exact number. Clearly, it's in the thousands, but when you consider both prisons, everything is being done against the best interest of the United States. I really don't even know what to say at this point. This is like worst case scenario. The fight is going to come here again, folks. The fight is going to come here. The way that this whole withdrawal should have happened, because I want to, I want to make this clear that I fully support us leaving Afghanistan, but not like this. What happened was that we pulled out our troops, left American civilians and Afghan allies in the country, knowing that the Taliban was going to take control over Afghanistan at some point. It was just a matter of when, didn't know how long. So when the Tal- when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, we had to send troops back to Afghanistan. The problem is, is that we gave up our airfields, we gave up our bases, we abandoned them, left our equipment. So now you're going back into a country where you have no assets set up anywhere. We completely left and had to go back into help evacuations where the Taliban's controlling airports. And we're asking permission from the Taliban to to help evacuate American citizens and Afghan allies who helped us in the war that the Taliban wants to kill. That's the problem. The problem is not leaving Afghanistan. The, the problem is how we left Afghanistan. To have to come back in to help get Americans out makes zero sense. Now, listen, we have smart people in our government that are working in these high positions, but they're not acting smart. They're doing things that are outside the interest of the United States. We have to seriously start looking into the politicians that we vote for, the people who get put, and Congress, the Senate, really needs to start looking more deeply into people that they that they vote for and confirm into the heads of certain departments and find out where do they have conflict of interest. I would I would tell you right now, I want to look at investments. I want to know what companies some of these appointees are invested in. Are they invested in companies that make war materials? Are they invested in companies that make vaccines, other pharma products? If they have large investment into these types of companies, if they have business dealings with these types of companies, I don't want them the head of the FDA. I don't want them the head of or I don't want them anywhere near the Department of Homeland Security. I don't want them anywhere near the FDA, CDC. If they have financial 
obligations to some of these pharmaceutical companies. I don't even want them in the Senate or the House of Representatives. We seriously need to vet our politicians and the people who get appointed to high-level government positions a lot better. It's just people that are being appointed or getting voted in that have interests that are not consistent with the American people. On this note, I'm going to leave this here. I wanted to get a podcast out earlier this week. However, life takes over and I didn't get a chance to do that. I will do another podcast. It'll be up on Sunday. I'm probably going to be covering a deadly force encounter, getting back into the warrior mindset. Uh, We'll be reading that, talking about the lessons. I'll probably read a little bit more from Holly McKee's book on uh, Only Cry for the Living uh, regarding ISIS. And then we'll go from there, see if there's any other news that comes up between now and Sunday. And I'll incorporate that in. This is Flip the Script Podcast. Make sure you hit the like button. Give me a five-star review on the podcast platform you listen to. Also, hit the subscribe button and the share button. Share this with your friends. And I greatly appreciate everybody that listens, everybody that watches. Uh, If you're listening on the podcast platform or if you're watching on YouTube, thank you. And uh, spread the word. This is Flip the Script out.